0: Well, as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from Atop a Hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritz Hughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome back to episode 57 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritz Hughes. Well, it's been a while since we've had an episode of the podcast. In fact, we've not had one since the summer conference, which I feel a little bit guilty about especially since I have loads of material that I recorded at the conference that we wish to share with you here on the podcast. Now, normally I take a month off in the summer to rest my podcasting engines and help run a three-week summer theater camp for kids in Mississippi. This year, in addition to all that, I've just been busier than usual around Shea Fritchews. What with the whole summer travels thing and a couple of book typesetting and cover creation projects and our well going dry in one of the driest summers we've had around here. So, we're starting Season 3 of the podcast in September instead of August. Normally, the first show we do after the conference is a Memories of Conferences more recent podcast that kind of serves as a wrap-up to what we did at the conference. However, my usual co-host for such shows, Rhonda White, did not attend the conference this year because she was starting graduate school in a writing program. So, we'll have to cover some of the wrap-up material when we talk to our president, Kat Pleska, ...in an upcoming show. But the short version I can give you is that it was an absolute blast. Kat did an amazing job of assembling the conference... ...along with help from folks like Sandy Tritt, Debbie Krim... ...Teresa Newsom, Chris Freeburn, Craig Snyder... ...and, of course, our President Emeritus Terry McNemer, among many others. And this year, West Virginia Writers inducted three previous podcast guests... ...into the ranks of the winners of our Just Uncommonly Good Award. They were former board member Richard A. Lewis literary agent Christine Withon from the BookSense Literary Agency, and author Lee Maynard. Lee Maynard himself was on hand to receive the award. He also graciously agreed to read a couple of short stories to kick off our Saturday entertainment and was given guitar accompaniment by our very own Pops Walker. I'm sure we'll have those readings as part of our future podcast series, and we will also have video of it a bit closer to next year's conference. We made some great new friends at the conference this year in the form of Doug and Talisha Williams, who are our musical entertainment on Saturday night. They also participated in the improvisational evening on Friday night called Whose Lie Is It Anyway, led by Mr. Steve Goff. They assisted those of us who were among the improv players as we had to improvise a song, actually four songs, based on audience input. It sounds scary, it was scary, but it turned out really well. In fact, that whole evening of readings and improv comedy can be found in its entirety at the West Virginia Writer's YouTube page, which we will have linked at our website. My job, though, at the conference this year was to act as Mr. Audiovisual, going around to record a number of the workshops being presented, as well as the entertainment and many of the author readings that went on. And today's podcast is just such a reading. It's by writer Jim Minnick, who has presented workshops at the summer conferences a few years back and made a return trip this year. While he was there, he graced the stage of our assembly hall with a reading from some of his works. I'd give you more background description of Jim here, but Kat Pleska does a much better job of it at the start of the recording.
1: Okay, without further ado, uh, I want to introduce um, our readers this evening. Uh, Jim, I I, I just met Jim for the first time today, but I certainly have seen him in the media his name and his new book uh for the very years. Um, a good bit in um, in the news media everywhere. He's gotten great reviews uh, and he's appearing everywhere for, for signings, readings and signings has just been tremendous. He's really dedicated to himself to, to
0: the marketing of this book and it it's really, really garnered a lot of attention. And uh, uh haven't had the opportunity to read again, so I guess I'll stay in line tomorrow and to get I'll be
1: with the rest of you. Um, read just a little bit about Jim further. Uh, the author of Blueberry Years and Memoir, uh, published by Thomas Dunn of St. Martin's. Jim Mann has also written a collection of essays, Finding a Clear Path, uh, Two Books of Poetry, Her Secret Songs and Burning Heaven. And he edited All There Is to Keep by Rita Whittle. In 2008, the Virginia College Bookstore Association awarded Bernie Kevin the Jefferson Cup for the best book of the year. So congratulations. Many uh, has won awards from the Appalachian Writers Association, Appalachian Heritage, Now and Then Magazine, and Radford University where he teaches writing and literature. He's garnered grants from the West Virginia Commission on the Arts, um, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, and a residency at Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Jim's work has appeared in many publications including in Shenandoah, Orion, San Francisco Chronicle, Encyclopedia of Appalachia, Conversations with Wendell Berry, The Sun, Appalachian Journal, Bed Journal News, and Wind. And for 13 years he wrote a monthly column for the Run-Up News, uh, New River Current. Currently, he's working on a novel about fire, healing, and Pennsylvania Dutch folklore. So that sounds really fascinating, I'm forward to it. He lives, hikes, and gardens in the mountains of Virginia with his wife and four dogs. So please welcome Jim Henry.
2: Thank you, Karen. welcome. It's great to be back here I have to say, um, West Virginia holds a soft place in my heart. My first book of essays, a collection of essays, Finding a Clear Path, was uh, published by West Virginia University Press in 2005. And also, when I came to this conference to present a couple of years ago, um, I met, made connections, and finally uh, landed my agent. So, uh, you all have been. Great nurturing ground for me as well. So I appreciate this, this beautiful state, beautiful people. So it's good to be back. Uh, this book, The Blueberry Years, is a story of one couple on one farm with 1,000 blueberry bushes. And my wife and I started, created from ground up, one of the first certified organic pick your own blueberry farms in the Atlantic. And so this took place in Floyd County, Virginia. Which is very rural, and uh, one of my favorite statistics about Floyd County, Virginia, is that it has only one red light in the whole county. Uh, so, um, but we had people, people come from all over uh, because we were organic, and we had all kinds of people, including uh, you know local farmers as well as uh, teachers as well as city dwellers from an hour away, uh, kids, Mennonites, every. every in every stride, uh, strangers and can all picking side by side. So, I'm going to read the, the first uh, piece in this book. is called The Pickers, and it's kind of a, a chronicling, uh, cataloging of all the people who came to our farm. The Pickers. They come to fill buckets and pans, canning jars, freezer bags, pie crusts, and always the ever waiting tongue. They come to visit and eat safe to hungers and loneliness and body. Though we offer only blueberries, they come wanting more. They come from the American dream, CEOs and wealthy realtors, two kids piling out of just-washed SUVs, wives stylish in their special picking outfits. Or they come from communes named Left Bank, Abundant Dawn, A Light Morning. They come tie-dye, shoeless, brawless, Sometimes bathless. On a good day, 30 cars of pickers fill our one acre field, strangers and friends all picking side by side. Most come from a distance, driving 20 miles or more just because we're organic. They negotiate the winding dirt road into these Virginia hills, the directions taped to the steering wheel, their vehicles grinding the last half mile of steep lane. Often they step out of the cars and ask, How did you ever find this place? They bring their children. Wild or well-behaved, all fascinated for a little while by bush with the sweet berry. The toddlers hide in the maze of canes while six-year-olds sneak fruit from their mother's buckets. When scolded, they sit and fill their pails with leaves and green berries. The infants go home, pooping blue. Many pickers come five times a season, year after year. Others come only once. Some come in Cadillacs and Land Rovers, their cars pitching and scraping on a lane, the hubcaps sparkling like newly minted coins. Some drive 20 old Dodges and Fours, the rust as hungry as the driver. They come from France or Germany, Korea and South Africa, Ecuador, Costa Rica, and Japan. Once a riding group of Japanese women spill out of three cars to cover to the field with quick voices and beautiful smiles. Because it is the last day of the season, they find only two or three pounds apiece, but still they laugh and sing. One shares a blueberry haiku and says, we should open a restaurant here and sell our dogs. Before any foreigners leave, I ask them to pronounce blueberry in the native tongue, and then write in our notebook, peringalgi, fresa azulas, lawberry. Most people harvest for themselves, but some pick for us on shares. A bucket for us, a bucket for them. We'll sell these at market be glad for the help Others harvest for, me- for restaurants, markets, or CSAs, community-supported agriculture farms. These pickers come the same day every week, rain or shine. I pick with them through soaking rains, or slickers, wool sweaters, useless. After a while, our fingers wrinkle and numb, too cold to pluck even the biggest berry. Others come to barter with chickens and eggs, lettuce and tomatoes, and fresh milk and goat and cheese. With one, I trade berries for massages, with another, a year supply of berries for our website. Once, I even burned berries for a truckload of fleeces. I want to try wool as a mulch for these bushes, as if to warm them, as if to make socks for these baby blues. They come bringing recipes, gifts of homemade soap, a blueberry cookie jar, a straw hat from Hawaii. Sometimes they bring us lunch or a bag of cookies, water, or a jar of just canned jam. One time, they even bring us sushi. They offer us homemade blueberry wheat beer or, take note Mr. Joe, a mason jar of moonshine filled with blueberries. We call it blue shine sitting behind the shed. Name's good. They come single or divorced, widow or bachelor, couple, gay and straight, married and not. They come celebrating their 60th anniversary or their honeymoon, feeding each other gentle on the day before the wedding, one couple picks for their reception, their eyes shining like each berry. They come crawling behind their parents, or walking with canes, or rolling in wheelchairs, a companion dog helping over the bumps. Some who came regularly will never come again, like Greta, killed in a car wreck, or Tim at 40, sucked away by skin cancer, or Ruby, whose generous heart, laughs no more. At the end of the season, they come as gleaners from local soup kitchens, beating the Blue Jays for the last berries. We let them pick for free, and then close the and hang a sign that reads, season's over, see you next year. And every day, every season, Sarah, my wife and I, we too come to this field as pickers, as pilgrims, as gleaners, whatever we find. The rest of the story, or the main arc of this whole book is uh, about this young couple with this crazy dream uh, to to make a living off the land and trying to chase this blueberry dream and and, uh, run a lot as we go. Uh, But there's also a lot of other parts of this uh, story, including, uh, since we were picker young, we had hundreds of people come to our field every day during the season, Uh, I had all these picker stories. So I tried to include some of them as well. I'm gonna read you one uh, called American Sushi. And I realized when I read this the first time in, um, in the North, Pennsylvania, people there didn't know what beanie weenies were. So I need to make sure y'all know what beanie weenies are. Anybody not know? Or in case you don't, in case you're shy. Beanie weenies are um, little like sausages and beans, you know, baked beans in cans. They sell them bait shops, right? Right next to the bait. So um, <clears throat> you get food for the fish, you get a bean wings for your shop. So alright, American sushi. In the field one busy Friday morning, two young Asian couples arrive. They drive slowly, hesitantly, while in the back seat, toddler boys press noses to windows and search for berries. I wait and watch them get out, unlatch the two boys, and then lock the car doors. When I welcome them, the parents nod their greetings, and one of the men says hello, but then they are silent as they listen and survey the field. They try to smile, but even this is hesitant and shy. I can only imagine what they think. How bizarre to find a crowd of people surrounded by green woods at the end of a very long dirt road, all of them speaking a foreign tongue and picking a foreign fruit. The two boys ignore all of this and tug their parents into the field as I hand them buckets and point the where to pick. Later, I venture down to visit and see if they need any more buckets. They smile more freely now and shake their heads no, say they'll just try to fill the ones they have. The boys nibble berries and chase each other around the parents' legs, squealing with mushed, berry glee. I squat beside the nearest child and offer a berry. He pauses, takes it from my palm, and it into his mouth, almost eating his fist with his sweet food. I stand back up, one of the fathers tells me that he and the other man are graduate engineering students at Virginia Tech. This is our first year in America, he says. He pauses and, struggling with the English, explains, these blueberries remind me of my uncle back home in Korea, his orchard. I helped harvest the persimmon and peach crop there. His voice trails off, his eyes staring at the rows and bushes. When he looks back, I have to turn away, the homesick was so clear in his eyes. These berries for a moment were transported him thousands of miles away. Soon after, they come to the checkout hut, the little boy's hands and knees and cheeks covered in a mixture of dirt and mashed blueberries. I weigh the berries and the fathers hold each child up to a circle of window on the scales where dark eyes purity and they watch the numbers roll. When I stand on the floor again, each child clutches the table and presses nose to the edge. Their wide eyes follow me as I empty each bucket. The blueberries rumbling into boxes. One boy tries to reach for another berry, but the mother gently pushes his hand over the back, saying he's had enough. The parents pay and thank us with warm smiles, and then they don't leave. Instead, they stand around the car eating lunch while the boys sit on the hood, all of them sweating in the midday sun. Sarah points to our picnic table, says to please use it, and they move their plates of food to the shaded benches. A moment later, one of the women offers us some of their sushi. We surprise them by taking two pieces out of the neat rolls and the Tupperware container. Sarah tells her, we've tried to make sushi rolls, but ours are never this tight. And sure enough, I hold a perfect roundness. A black strip of seaweed wraps chewy white rice with slivers of celery, carrot, and cucumber in the middle but also in the very center, a surprise, some type of meat. Sarah points to the meat and asks, what's this? The woman replies, beanie weenies. (laughs) It tastes good. Thank you very much. I'm gonna read uh, three poems maybe, uh, three or four. Close with a short one from the Blueberry Years as well. Um, walking around to see these are all from Burning Heaven, which is a collection that came out in 2008. Um, collection of poems that all kind of deal with the paradox in some way. Um, so walking, just just seeing, I uh, took a little walk around the campus here and I heard the morning doves. And um, one of my favorite poems in this collection is it's called morning Doves. And um, I need to make sure you all know how it's spelled. Who, who knows? How's morning
1: spelled?
2: M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Okay? So, brief, right? The morning of a uh, funeral. Uh, I had a friend who, she was into her 40s, um, who thought it was not with the youth. Thought it was morning of the of day. And I was the one who told her, uh, which was probably a mistake. But, um, so this poem is for her. It's called Naming the Morning Dove. Helen mourned the truth I should not have told her. Like the dove, she sighed a descending breath of regret. For her, the dove sang of joy, a quiet greeting to the morning sun. Who is to say Helen isn't right, or that this song she could not exact both the blackness of loss and the joy of the dawn? And also, this time of year, the mountain world is blooming. So, I'm going to read you um, what I call my grandma and grandpa poems. The first one is about my grandmother. Um, Well, first, my grandfather was this big, rough man who owned the road and swore at every car. Um, And my grandmother was kind of the the calming influence. We always say, Now, now, Arthur. And uh, one time, they they regularly uh, picked me up and we went. To the mountain to get spring work just about every Sunday. Um, And this one time um, they had this fight that I was in the middle of, and it was over Mountain Laurel. Mountain Laurel is the state flower of where I grew up, Pennsylvania, and it's illegal to pick it. So I think that's enough background. So it's called Mountain Laurel. White cups touched with pink, a saucer of pollen for each bee. Sunday drive in the mountains, laurel thickets lining the road. Grandma, hobbled by arthritis, looks to me. Pick me a laurel. You can't, Grandpa explains. It's illegal, the state flower. His words hang between us. I know, she replies, that points and tells me to break and bring her a stem. I do resurrect her request each spring to breathe in this memory, to hold what no law can touch. And then, poem uh, from my grandfather, uh, in addition to being big and gruff, he, he always uh, washed the dishes after supper, and he always chewed tobacco at the same time. And so I, I loved that. Paradox. And you know, he was very gentle and always he cut tons and tons of quilt patches for my grandmother to make it quilt. So this is called after supper. After supper, grandpa pouches his lip, spits clean any strays, and approaches the sink. In his undershirt, he leans on a counter and begins this ritual of cleaning sink, drawing water, and washing dishes. The bowls fill his hands shine and whiskered face find their nested place. Each glass he inspects with fingers soft, then pauses before picking up the plates. With soapy hands, drooping belly, this farmer who cuts quilt patches and cusses every cow, stomps to the table to lean under, hawk and spit in a rusty coffee can. He wipes his chin and belches soft Returns to the sink to shimmer in each plate. (coughs) And then one last poem, and this one just recently was picked by Claudia Anderson, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who lives in Virginia. Uh, She picked this along with uh, seven other poems by Virginia poets for permanent display on a new metro line, metro rail. Station being built outside of D.C. Tyson's Corner. So these eight poems are going to be put somehow by an artist on a, a cement kiosk of some sort. So 100 i am just thrilled to think of this. 100 years um, down, down the you know, 100 years from now, people traveling that railroad line will, will see these poems. So it had to be very short, and so I made it, it's not six lines on the page here, but I made it six lines for this, this uh, contest. It's called "I Dream of Being." A dream of being sprouts from my hand, its roots trace lifeline, then plunges into vein, a tendril filling every capillary. From each finger, a leaf broad and green, from the love line, the first bloom. Blueberry book in closing for the for my section here. Um, this is called. Um, the wrong one. This is called other colors, and this is about blueberries not being just blue. Uh, I realized, you know, in addition to telling my wife's story, my wife and my story, um, I wanted this book to celebrate everything blueberry, and so I realized at some point that blueberries were other colors. So. Colors. sure it's blue blue jean blue blue bird blue deep blue these blue mountains and if untouched it should have a veil of white a cloud cover over this ocean globe but it's also a blue tinge with purple purple of royalty purple of the shadows hiding inside its blossoms cup this hint of dark comes out if the berry hangs too long on the bush comes over right and also when the bloom of whiteness rubs off between as it travels its purpling road from bush to finger to mouth. The purple pops when the blueberry is cooked. Then the heat of oven performs an alchemist trick, turning blue to, to purple of pastries, purple of slumps, purple of cobblers, jellies, and pies, purple bubbling under a batter of purple to stain your teeth. Before a blueberry turns blue, it really is pink, the blush of a child's cheek, soft red of the sunset as it slowly burns down the shoulder of a green mountain, pink turning to red, turning to blue, and like a sunset, all this slow coloring happens at such a pace that you fail to notice until night falls and the stars speckle the blueberry sky. Before pink, the blueberry is really a greenberry, the size of a pea, but harder and not as dark and not hidden in a pod, but out and tinged with red at the very lips of what used to be the blossom tip. On a bush in a field full of bushes, these tiny green orbs dangle like thousands of platters inside thousands of invisible bells. Before all of this, before the purple and blue and green, a blueberry really is white. And this white really is a bell, the bell of blossom that rings and rings the invisible din of scent. All of it in the blue sky the waves of sweetness. All of it music to a bumblebees and ears. Thank you all.
0: Jim Minnick can be found online at jim-minnick.com. That's M-I-N-I-C-K. You can also find that link at our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. His books are found on that site, and you can also find them from the usual online book retailers, and I highly recommend them. I'm happy to report as well that the blueberries he grows at his blueberry farm are quite tasty indeed. He brought some to the conference and generously shared them. By the way, you can also find links to our friends Doug and Talisha Williams, as well as the complete video of the Friday night entertainment they participated in at podcast.wvwriters.org. For our next episode, we'll be joined by our organization's president, Kat Pleska, who will give all the details on a new anthology project West Virginia Writers is putting together, along with Woodland Press. That's going to be open exclusively for submissions by West Virginia Writers members. We will have the details next time. If you're a little more impatient than that, you can find the information at our Facebook page and on the West Virginia Writers blog. But we'll give you the full skinny for you next time here on the West Virginia Writers podcast. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer Pops Walker, whose albums can be found via popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was assembled atop a dry and dusty hill in Mercer County.